Hi, I'm Luke Eisler. And I'm Jay Cox. Welcome to this week's episode of the Audibility Podcast. If you want to get connected with us, go ahead and follow our Instagram at Audibility Podcast and visit our brand new website, audibilitypodcast.com. We want to embody the environment of the coffee shop and create a virtual third space where passionate people can engage in community and be united in listening. Yeah, so this week we're starting our new series on the image of God. Yeah. Um, And genuinely, this episode, I think for me, was convicting in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, We'll get more into it, but talking about philosophical image of God versus Christological image of God. Yeah. Me me personally, I know even in preparing for some of these episodes, I have fallen more into the camp of thinking just more intellectually about Mm -hmm. the image of God and what the implications are. And I've just kind of left off the, I was about, I was going to say equally important, but more important aspect of it, which is like relationally as it relates to Christ and other people, other people. Yeah. So, um, it's really honestly going to be a defining episode for the series. And I think, I think for this season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Um, it's going to, it's going to, it's really good. Yeah. What just a, a brief, um, kind of synopsis moving forward of this series as a whole yeah so this series is really just kind of breaking down um what it means to be an image of god and how that's been distorted by the fall Mm -hmm. um how that affects our relationships with other people and then how christ comes in to and redeems that and shows us what it really means to be an image of god yeah and we talk a lot about and uh or we that including dr chrysler um talk a lot about what that actually means, mm. um, what it means for Christ to be the image of God. Yeah, and um, why it's important. Why it's important, even why it's important to think of Christ when we're talking about the image of God. Yeah. Um, we'll get more into that in the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's I've, I've listened to it several times, and it's incredible. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited for people to hear this one. Yeah, so... Um, before we get started, grab yourself the triple C from the new fall menu at Do South Coffee Roasters. What uh, What is in that drink, Jay? Yeah, I'll tell you. Um, so it's a cascara simple syrup, which cascara is the dried berries of the coffee plant. Oh. Um, some cinnamon, steamed milk, and espresso. And enjoy the episode. Let's hop in. Hey, Luke. Hey, Jay. Welcome to the Audibility Podcast. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. We're sitting very close today. We really are. We're, for those that can't see, which is everyone, we are sitting right beside each other on this side of the table. What? They don't know what this side is. Yeah. On the left side of the table with uh, a guest on the far end because we're socially distanced. Yes. Yes. Res- <laughs> responsibility is key. Woo. <laughs> um, so we have Dr. Channing Chrysler in with us today. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah, it's great yeah. to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Hello. Yeah, we're yeah. very excited. Yeah, so uh, tell us a little about, like, where, where are you from? I actually have never asked you about this before, yeah. so go ahead. I'm actually originally from uh, Texas, Lubbock, Texas. That's in far west Texas. Um, mm. 
it's not a place that you uh, have to really want to go to and <laughs> you might have to go there. Um, I grew up there and um, I've been at AU now for, this is my 10th year at wow. AU. Oh, nice. And so I'm an associate professor of New Testament here. And um, yeah, I don't know what all you want to know, but that's a little bit about yeah. me. We, yeah. we always ask um, the professors, the two that we've had on, what kind of their um, doctoral thesis was and just kind of yeah. let let them geek out about it for a minute. <laughs> yeah, so so my PhD was in New Testament and early Christianity, and uh, for my dissertation, I actually examined uh, Paul's use of Old Testament lament language in mm -hmm. uh, his epistle to the Romans. Wow. And so if you think about uh, some of the Psalms of lament, you know, like, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? Mm. Um, why have you forsaken me? Um, God has rejected us, that kind of language. Uh, Paul actually uses quite a bit of it in Romans, mm. and so it helps us better understand um, his thinking, the way that his theology is formed. It also gives us historically, I think, an insight into what the Romans were really going through, because lament language is not something that you played around with. You only used it mm. um, when things were awful, and so it's sort of the quintessential language of suffering in Israel's history, and so the fact that Paul uses so much of it in Romans um, really shed some light on his theological development, but also hmm. uh, what he's dealing with in writing to the Romans. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. What kind of got you interested in that? Yeah, it was actually an article by a, a, a systematic theologian from Germany, Tübingen, Germany, named Oswald Bayer, who's hmm. probably my favorite uh, theologian. He's still living, um, but he uh, he's sort of a, a, a hybrid between a historical theology with a focus on Luther, but then he does his own work as well. And he wrote a little article uh, on the importance of lament in both Old Testament and New Testament mm -hmm. and its implications for theology. And he had some just sort of throwaway comments uh, about Paul's use of lament in his letters, particularly Romans. So it sort of captured my interest, and then I mm -hmm. began to see that um, other scholars had not really uh, d dove into it too much. Mm -hmm. And so it gave me an opportunity, um, you know, to do just that. It's what you've always hoped for as a doctoral student is to find something nobody else has done much on. <laughs> so yeah. I, I still remember that moment was it almost makes you cry, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Then you have to go to your PhD supervisor and make sure that you're not, not imagining something, right? Is this really not been done? And so, mm. uh, so that's really how I got interested in it. And yeah. it really is something that I've continued to you know, in my research to work, work in uh, mm -hmm. still today. That's yeah. Really nice. yeah. Cool. I remember you talked about a lot in New Testament that I, I think specifically with Romans, the idea of like the unifying thing being suffering, which. I yeah. I, yeah. I mean, scholars have always debated, you know, the sort of the occasion to Paul's letters and whatever the historical circumstances may have been, the one common thread is that everyone was hurting and suffering. And so it sort of becomes the Zitz and Laban situation in life of behind all of Paul's letters. Mm. Yeah. 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 Wow. I think that's kind of a good transition into kind of uh, Jay and I wanted to do this series um, kind of right out of the gate this this season because there's there's been a lot of suffering in uh, in the yeah. world just over the past what six months. Yeah. Just really the whole summer spring, it's just been a tough time to be a, a person. So. <laughs> We wanted to. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. <laughs> we wanted to talk about, like, kind of, in the Christian worldview, what it means to be a person, which mm -hmm. is to bear the image of God, and I mean, we're all created with that, and so um, today we're just going to kind of break that down and what that is and mm -hmm. what and that I, means. And I think with, we talked about in episode one of this season, 
uh, our new sort of lens for how we're looking at everything as this podcast being a virtual third space. So yeah. a place where people can come and talk and be on equal playing field and um, two different kinds of conversations. There's really just kind of fun, like talk about things in the culture, like literature and movies and fun stuff like that. Yeah, sure. And then a second type where you kind of step outside and kind of view the culture. So um, I think that this episode is really, this whole series really is going to be a lot more of that. So um, thank you for being here for the first yeah. episode. And yeah. Us with yeah. That. yeah. Thanks, so thanks for having we wanted to me. kick it off with a, with a good guest. So, yeah. so oh, give us an overview of what we're kind of doing in this series, Luke. Yeah. So um, we're, we're going to start talking about, uh, talking about creation and we're going to talk this episode about um, creation. We're going to talk about um, the fall of man. We're kind of going to outline what we're doing for this series, which is, uh, First, we're going to lead in with creation. And in, uh, in Genesis 1, uh, verse 26, when God says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Um, so that's just kind of a picture of like uh, when God created us, how he did it. And, and so we're going to... We're going to talk about, yeah, that. Good. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, and then we're going to, the next two, three episodes, Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about the distortion of the image of God, mm-hmm. um, like on a personal level. Yep. Um, and then the next episode will be about the oppression against the image of God. Yes. Um, so outward. Which, what is, what is the distortion of the image of God? Uh, it's essentially... We'll talk about this more, but when what you we'll t- talk about the image of God today and how that works, but taking what it actually means and warping it to be something it's not essentially. Mm-hmm. And then the oppression is sort of the outworking of someone that. someone else doing that to another person, or the outworking of your own kind of distortion of your view on what it means to bear the image of God. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those two things, <laughs> those two things are kind of byproducts of the fall of man, um, which is when um, Adam and Eve did something they were not supposed to. Yeah, don't in the do garden. that. Don't, please don't do that. Please don't. God just said, "Don't do that," and then they Too did late it. Now. So. Yeah. Too late. Oh, well, whatever. Um, yeah. And then after the fall, it, we we know in the Bible that we're we are still image bearers, um, because after the fall, that is mentioned again, um, talking about murder, right? Uh, Genesis 9-6? Yeah. Probably should have... I'll pull that up, actually. Come on, Luke. My bad. <laughs> I was so quick with pulling up Genesis Genesis 1. Yeah, you did really good with that. It is. Whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Yeah. So it's just reaffirming that even after the fall, even after this huge mistake that humans made, yeah. we still have that within us. Yeah. So... so Uh, Let's talk about the image of God. Okay. What do you think the image of God is? 
What does the Bible say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you, you just mentioned uh, Genesis 1:26, which is really uh, the starting point for both the biblical text, but also this particular conversation. What's interesting in Genesis 1:26 is that we sometimes forget um, that paired with the word image is also likeness. Mm-hmm. So image, you have uh, salam, and with likeness, you have damut. And then Septuagint, that is the Greek Old Testament, right? The Greek translation mm-hmm. of, the, of the Old Testament. Uh, that salam gets, gets translated as icon. Mm-hmm. And then the damut gets translated as omiosis. And so we sometimes forget that both image and likeness go together. Now, mm-hmm. um, interpreters have debated through the centuries as to whether or not these are parallel terms. But the consensus now, I think, is, is that they do sort of inform uh, mm-hmm. one another. And the reason that that's important is, is because this language um, of, of image and likeness, even though it's so fundamental to what the narrator's doing in Genesis, what's surprising is, is that you don't see it sort of blossom throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Hmm. Now, part of that could be because it's kind of axiomatic to all that hmm. God's doing, right? Yeah. It sort of yeah. goes without saying. Sort of the Genesis 9 says, look, yes, this is still a thing that's important <laughs> to God, but he doesn't harp on it moving, uh, moving forward. And so... Hmm. I think that image and likeness belong together, and that really gets the ball rolling and try to determine what does image of God mean, say, in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So the only other time you see these terms sort of paired together is in Genesis 5. And there's actually a reference to Seth, the son of Adam, bearing the likeness of Adam. And right before that, you have this, this language about, uh, about being image bearers of God, about being made in the image of God. So that sort of got the ball rolling and saying, okay, well, maybe the image of God and the ancient Hebraic mind was, is that maybe the ancient Hebrews actually thought that God was a two-legged man and that when you talk about the uh, likeness or the image of God, uh, that he's essentially, the narrator is suggesting, that to be made in the image of God is to be able to walk on two feet, to be able to walk <laughs> upright. So this actually was one of the early suggestions as to what it actually uh, meant. But I don't think it really works. I think that the rest of the Old Testament bears out the fact that they didn't perceive of God as simply sort of this old man on two legs and yeah. therefore, you know, <laughs> to be in his image is sort of physically to be able to stand upright, that there's far more to it than that. And in fact, there's warnings in the Pentateuch, of course, about making any kind of image or, mm-hmm. or likeness of God, yeah. uh, you know, like a man. So that kind of takes that off the table right away, I think. Yeah. And so what's left is, is, is to suggest, well, maybe in the context of Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, given what Yahweh uh, sort of commissions Adam and Eve to do, that is to rule over creation uh, in his sort of in his stead, right, as his representative, mm-hmm that maybe bearing the image of God has something to do with dominion, that uh, mm. ruling and reigning somehow uh, bears the likeness or the image uh, of God. So that's certainly one possibility, and it makes good exegetical sense uh, of Genesis 1, because wherever the conversation goes, uh, the fact is it has to be grounded in what the biblical writers originally meant. Yeah. Um, we don't want to get too far afield where that is just totally lost in the conversation. So I think there's probably a place at the table, pun intended, there's a, there's, a, <laughs> there's, a, there's a place at the table for seeing image of God as at least including uh, a likeness of dominion, hmm. uh, of kingdom even, mm, yeah. and of bearing that um, upon, uh, upon, the, upon the earth. 
Another option, of course, is to sort of the, the two R's, right? So reason and relationship, or mm -hmm. the, the ability to ration and the, the ability to, uh, to, to relate. And, and that certainly um, is something that is um, sort of just taken for granted. I mean, sure, one of the name, name differences between human beings and other creatures is their ability to reason and their ability to relate to their creator. And so therefore, perhaps one could argue that bearing the image of God is to have the same capacity, not exactly the same capacity, obviously, but to have a capacity to, to reason like God yeah. and to relate like God. And so you could actually sort of package these really nicely with some good old-fashioned alliteration of sort of ruling and reasoning and relating, uh, mm. perhaps, out of Genesis well, we of 1. Yeah, 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 you know, sort of <laughs> good alliteration. <laughs> yeah, right, that's right. It's always a, it's a good way to remember something, right? Yeah. So you, you could maybe take those three R's and say that this, in some ways, at least from Genesis 1 and 2, um, sort of captures at least a part of what it means to bear uh, the image of God. I think that's the part of, that's the uh, Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also, there's also uh, a New Testament side to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I can pause there. I don't know you may have some. So you, I can keep yeah. going, or yeah, you may I, have some thoughts. I think when Jay there. and I, um, when Jay and I sat down uh, with some of our, our writing team to kind of write this episode and write this outline, we wanted to define it um, in a way that could be useful in talking about it in terms of today, like what is happening yeah. around us, and um, I think a. Also, sort of a nice marriage of those two ways of thought are, is the, our definition is our ability to participate in the communicable attributes of God, which the communicable attribute of God is the attributes that he shares with, with humanity, with mankind. Um, so things like justice, love, dominion, um, reason, things like that. Um, yeah, so with that definition, do you think that's a sufficient definition for that? Or do you think there's, it's, there needs to be a more holistic? Yeah, so I, I think holistic is one way to put it, or, or maybe Christological. Mm. Right? Because, <laughs> um, be, because I think part of, the, part of the problem that we sometimes have is, is that we, we rightly begin with Genesis 1. But if we're going to understand the image of God as, uh, as according to what Christian scripture would have to say, mm -hmm. then we need to think about the way the New Testament sort of reflects upon the image of God, the likeness of God. Mm. And, and are there places in the New Testament where this is, where this is actually fleshed out? Yeah. And yeah. there are a couple of places, I think, some key texts that really come into play here. And we could spend some time talking about Hebrews 1, and that Jesus himself is said to sort of be the exact representation of God's being. But I'm going to resist that and put it aside for, <laughs> for, for, for a minute because I think, um, you know, the, the, the real cachet here of, of information about image of God from a New Testament perspective is Paul. And mm. particularly in Romans 8 and particularly in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Mm. And the, the reason I've started out by mentioning the fact that, that image of God and the likeness of God are sort of parallel ideas is because Paul weds both of these together in Romans 8, 28, 29, and mm -hmm. 30, so that he, mm. speaks about, he speaks about God predestining us um, to be conformed to the likeness or to the image of his Son. And so it brings into the conversation, okay, wait a minute, if God predestined us to be in the likeness and the image of Christ, then bearing the image of God has to be set against the backdrop of the second person of the Trinity. Yeah. It has mm -hmm. to be set against the backdrop of Jesus himself. 
So that bearing the image of God, while obviously you don't find Jesus or Christos um, in Genesis 1, from Paul's perspective, he's there. Yeah. Right? So that when Adam and Eve are made in God's image, for Paul, that is to be made in the image of God uh, as God sees it in relationship to you know to Jesus and what's really fascinating in Romans 8 is that if you if you read if you follow Romans 8 from about verse 8 17 to the end of the chapter what's really on Paul's radar is that the fact that if one wants to be glorified with Christ they must first suffer with Christ Mm. and he goes through uh, the paces of saying creation is lamenting groaning um, for a renewal of creation groaning for the glorification of the sons of God that is to be raised from the dead. Even the Spirit himself participates in this groaning in mm-hmm. verses 26 and 27. Then you get to 28, 29, and 30, and it's almost as if we forget Paul's been talking about the suffering of Christ and suffering with Christ. So the point I want to make is, is that when Paul says that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, he's talking about Jesus as both crucified and risen, as both suffering and glorified. So that even even before the fall, that there is in God's mind, it seems, that to bear his image is to be set against the backdrop of Jesus, uh, who is to be crucified and risen, so that even before the fall, there is something about the image of God that bears that stamp of a crucified and risen Jesus. Mm. And so that so that this whole conversation about the image of God if it's isolated to Genesis 1, then what can happen is you can jump the exegetical curb and it becomes sort of more of a dogmatic and really philosophical conversation. Mm, But if you let Paul guide you, then it becomes in many ways what I think every conversation should end up being, and it's a Christological conversation, right? And so that that to bear the image of God is not somehow um, part A and that part B is Jesus. It's just part A all the way through, Mm. (laughs) and Jesus has been there all along. And and to, to bear the image of God is essentially to reflect both the suffering and the glory of Jesus, and that was planned even uh, before the fall. Mm. Yeah, so do you think with, that's interesting to me because I think a lot of times we do have this philosophical view of the image of God. So how do you think that, that kind of, because I can recognize that's like pretty prevalent in the way church Mm -hmm. works now. So like, what are the negative outworkings of that as opposed to a more Christological image of God? Well, I think, I think one of the negative outworkings is, is that it places the burden upon us to actually bear God's image, huh. mm. um, apart from what we both see modeled and accomplished in Christ. And so, so, so the onus becomes laid upon us. And if you, if you think about the way that this works both inside and outside the church, so if we're thinking about sort of philosophical understandings of, of, of not necessarily, philosophers may not use the, the language of image of God, But essentially, they're talking about the worth of the human being, the identity of the human being, which sort of overlaps with what we're talking about in Genesis 1. And I think historically what's happened is is that people get, there's both a burden to sort of be God-like, and then there's also this sort of reductionistic element. So that, for example, for someone like Marx, 
um, it's just the economic man, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Human beings can be reduced to their sort of economic ecosystem. If it's Freud, the, uh, man is reduced, his worth, woman's worth is, and identity is reduced, you know, to sex and to sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, if, it's, if it's actually a ph philosopher proper, then you have someone like Heidegger or, or any number of, you know, fill in the sort of fill in the blanks. And so I think th there's two things that happen to answer your question when Christ is left out of it. It places the burden upon us, but then there's actually, there's actually no sense of direction. So people have to come in and say, well, here's what it means to be godlike, or here's what it means to be a human being. It's all about politics. It's all about economics. Mm. It's all about sex. Mm. Um, it, it, and, and so I think we see this sort of uh, you know, percolating in our own world over and yeah. over and over and over again. And I think in some ways the reason that the church doesn't help as much as it could is because it's still camped out in Genesis 1, sort of staring um, at, the, at the Latinized version, you know, Imago Dei, as if that's really going to get me to a Christian understanding of what it means to mm. bear the image of God. Mm. I need help from Paul, and what Paul provides for us, I think, is both uh, a place to look specifically to ultimately define what God had in mind with the image of God, which is essentially to bear the image of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But then also, the, the, the burden's not laid upon me. Not only do I have an example, but I have someone who actually accomplishes this in my place. Mm. Um, and so, so, so I have both direction and I have um, sort of this ease of, of burden, of, of needing to bear God's image. Christ has done it um, perfectly for me, again, in his suffering, his glorification, in his death, and in his, his resurrection. So would you say that in order to bear God's image well, as Christians, we just live the Christian life and be like true to what Christ has modeled for us? Yeah, I think it's that I think it's that age old sort of problem that's plagued the church for centuries. Right. So mm -hmm. do I need to imitate Jesus or trust in Jesus? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is yes. Right? <laughs> and, and so so, to, to, you know, so to bear his image. Um, sure. There's a sense in which. Um, there's a sense in which I need to imitate him, um, but I can't really imitate him well without trusting what he already has done and what he yeah. what he very much provides, you know, for me. Mm -hmm. So Jesus very much becomes the linchpin in all of this. Um, he holds it sort of all together, which again, not to harp on Paul, but this is the very kind of thing that Paul <laughs> yeah. says about no harp on him. This is the very kind of thing that that, that, that that Paul says about Jesus, right? Thinking about that great Christological hymn in, in Colossians that yeah. all things are held together in Jesus. Yeah, well, I read that, that, that includes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that includes um, that includes uh, bearing, you know, God's image, which yeah. which we need to do, which we must do, which God has called us to do, and yet God has come and He has not only um, modeled it for us, but He has He has done it for, mm. for us, right? Yeah. And so, so we, so yes, we need to uh, imitate Him at, to so as to bear His image, but also to trust that the the perfect representation, the exact representation of His being, as the writer of Hebrews would say. Is actually found in Jesus, mm -hmm. and so, um, and so, so I have to, I have to both trust um, and follow. I have to both trust and uh, imitate, um, and and they are, these things are sort of interrelated with one another. You don't get one without the other. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Ooh. Whoa, we said. I've been time. thinking about um, this ties into the conversation. Like recently, I've been thinking about how Jesus having the uniqueness of the Christian faith where we're not following axioms, but uh, a 
person essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the Christological image of God and that in mind, how does that change the way that we interact? Because I can see like with the philosophical um, image of God, it's a lot too like cut and dry. It almost seems. Yeah. Uh, how do how do you think that kind of plays out? Well, I think with Jesus, I mean, what we see is we've we've seen somebody do it. Yeah. It's yeah. like I can look and say, hey, wait a minute, this can be done, right? Mm. Um, because Jesus has come and he's he's born God's image um, perfectly. And I can both participate in that. In other words, that accomplishment becomes mine. So if you got to speak about communicable attributes, right? I mean, well, this is the one, right? Yeah. This is the one that you want to participate in. Mm. And that is to participate in what God has accomplished in Christ who, who bears the image perfectly. But then also... Even with the language of imitation, it's not bare imitation. In other words, it's Jesus's presence with mm. us, and not just following an axiom. It's it's his very it's his very presence by his Spirit, um, which guides us, leads us, enables us, um, you know, to to bear that to bear that image. And now, in terms of what that ends up looking like, I think it looks a lot like faith and love is what yeah. it ends up yeah. looking like. It looks a lot like trust and love. That these are the things that, that, that over and over and over again um, to, to sort of boil it down to what it really means, what it really looks like when you're, when you're bearing the image of God. It's going to always be this, this beautiful mixture of faith, trust, and love. Um, mm. And so, uh, or maybe as Paul would put it, um, sort of faith, Hope and uh, and love in First mm. Corinthians thirteen mm. uh, that that this is really at the heart of 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 you know bearing God's image from a Christological viewpoint and not merely a uh, a philosophical one and really not one that's sort of it's sort of theological but kind of theological with a little t yeah. because you haven't really taken into consideration. Um, Jesus' role in all of this, which is not just a part, but it actually defines the whole conversation. So kind of in the vein, uh, we've touched on this, but I think really hashing out the difference between what it means to be an image bearer and bearing the image of God, um, I think that's something me and Luke talked about, but I wanted to see your take on that. Like wh- what's kind of the difference? Does that make even make sense? Like, Well, what do you have in mind exactly with that distinction? Because you could go a lot of ways. Yeah, I think, I think with... Image bearer as like, because in Genesis one and two, it's like they're kind of meshed. Like, there's before the fall, there wasn't really a distinction because that's just their reality. But then you have the fall, and in Genesis nine six, clearly there's some capacity in which they're still image bearers. Right. But they're not necessarily. They're clearly not bearing the image with, you know, Lamech and all those guys. So like how that actually plays out and you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think, I think I see the distinction that you're making with that. I, and I, I would tend to agree. I think maybe I touched on this a minute ago and that is, um, I think, you know, after the fall, after Genesis three, 
perhaps bearing the image becomes more of a burden. Whereas mm -hmm. bef before the fall, um, it was just a, um, as simple as what Adam and Eve were, right? And uh, it's just who it's just who they were. Just tend in the garden. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. but yeah, and and, and um, with without hindrance, without shame, mm. um, without violence. Without all the things that that very much sort of disfigure uh, the image of God, but I think it becomes more of a burden after the fall, for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, the Adam and Eve and their descendants, which in some ways are all of us, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, they become they become both perpetrators uh, of those who disfigure the image, and they also become victims of that, right? Mm -hmm. So they're always culpable. And yet they're also they're also being uh, hurt by it, and in some ways that defines all of us, right? Yeah. Yeah. That we're all we're all um, perpetrators of disfiguring the image, and the way that I not only in the way that I treat others, but in what I do with with God. Uh, mm -hmm. And we see this in ancient Israel. Immediately there's this sense of of, of idolatry and 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 so so forth. But then there's also this sort of lack of love and social injustice towards one another. And all are sort of culpable and play a part in that. Mm -hmm. But the other side of that coin is, is that we're also all victims of that, right? We, we've, yeah. we've all been sort of victims of injustice um, or, or, or violence or whatever it may be. So I both am responsible for disfiguring the image of God in myself uh, and in harming others. And yet then I also, though, have felt that and experienced mm -hmm. that. And I actually think that this is something that we don't always recognize. But I think Paul actually makes this point subtly in Romans 1 through 3. Yeah. Um, you know, that Paul is not just saying, he is primarily saying that, yes, God is right to judge sinful humanity. But at the same time, he's acknowledging that the Romans, the Christians in Rome, are also victims of these things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the lack of love um, from from other people. So it's not an either or. And unfortunately, even after you come to faith in Christ, it's not an either or. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's a reality that we are still both, uh, yes, we are sort of uh, uh, victims of these things, of having the image of God spoiled by what we suffer from other people, but um, hopefully to a much lesser degree, but it still can be there. We're also... Um, perpetrators and guilty of disfiguring that image within us and um, uh, and uh, and in others in the way that we treat others. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We uh, I think we're going to touch on Romans one through three in our oppression of the image of God uh, episode because yeah. uh, that's kind of how we're going to root this. And like you said, it's important to look at this from a Christological standpoint because if we don't, then it is just a philosophical thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it gets it's a very it becomes a very sort of anemic exegetical discussion, right? Mm, because mm -hmm. it's just tied to Genesis one, um, or it becomes a philosophical conversation. And and of course, this is how some would talk about it. Um, but this is how I I think, at least from a biblical standpoint, and really from Christian tradition, that this is the this is the the more fruitful way, the more robust way to talk about yeah. it is is in light of uh, of Jesus. I mean, surely mm -hmm. Jesus has something to say about the image of God, right? And so, um, so he definitely deserves a place, um, the primary place, you know, in the, in the conversation. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think sometimes in my own experience, it's when you think about it so philosophically, it, you can still be like, yeah, people have value and people are, you know, whatever. Yeah. But the, the practicum of it just doesn't add up at all. You don't really yeah. like go 
yeah. and do that. There's no way to carry it out, right? Yeah. It's just always a conversation. And I think, you know, we were talking before about, well, not that conversations are bad. No, no, no. <laughs> but, but, you know, we, we were talking before, before we, we, we started recording that, you know, the world is a dumpster fire right now. Yeah. Yes. And, and what, I, what I oftentimes hear is, is, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about this. And then there's a, there's, there comes a point in which there's a recognition that we need to act upon this. Exactly. And that's where things sort of break down. Well, how are we going to act upon it? Mm. Can we act upon it in a loving way, in a just way, in a fair way, where everybody involved and the answer is, unfortunately, I mean, there are some things that we can do, but in some ways it always just sort of devolves into an endless conversation about the mm. same problem. Yeah. Because there's no real way forward. There's no way to carry out the human worth, or if you want to talk about the image of God, apart from Christ. Yeah. yeah. And so, so you know, I, I, I sometimes I'm frustrated as a biblical scholar. Sometimes I'm frustrated by the fact that in philosophical conversations, the philosophers, non-Christian secular philosophers, are given the keys to the car, and they get to set the discussion all the time. And I think in reality, um, from a Christian viewpoint, we should insist upon, whether it's the problem of evil or whether it's the image of God, that it needs to be reframed mm -hmm. in light of what God has done in Christ. Mm. Now, I realize that in a number of philosophical circles, this would be sort of laughable to some people. But I think if it's going to be a, a Christian take on human worth, a Christian yeah. take on the image of God, then the conversation in some ways has to be reframed from the beginning in light of what God's accomplished in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. when you do reframe it from a Christian perspective, then it does become like you can act out. Yes, then there's hope. Yeah. All right? Exactly. Uh, but but, but a, a, apart from that framework, I think there's just this, well, I mean, to go back to Romans 8, there's just futility mm. because God has destined the world to futility apart from Christ. And so, so it becomes this sort of endless conversation. It becomes the same problems throughout every century. Um, and I, I'm not suggesting for a moment that there's not a place for legislation, for politics. I mean, mm. we are political people. We are sexual people. Yeah. We, 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 are, we are all those things. But what, what Christ does is he, he sheds light upon to what degree and in what way we should be those things, yeah. right? And, and so, so he is, again, sort of that one that holds all of this uh, uh, together. And, and, and I think apart from him, we're just sort of, you know, plugging big holes in the ship with a finger for a little while. And mm -hmm. it, it doesn't have any real, you know, lasting uh, effect and impact. Yeah. 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 That's interesting you bring up. I was reading for a class, I think it was Kierkegaard on the present age, and he talked about how people just continually are just talking and talking and the train isn't moving yeah. instead of actually going out and making things happen. Right. Um, and Kierkegaard was he tied in some in some way to the Christian faith, but yeah, sure. um, that's, that's so interesting that um, like without Christ, you're not great going anywhere, you yeah. know? Yeah, I mean, and, and it certainly doesn't have any, any, any lasting effect because the same problems continue to plague um, even with the best political solutions, mm -hmm. right? Or, or any kind of, within any institution in society because the same problems be, remain unfixed and that is human depravity and death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those become the forces that, that no one and nothing and no system, try as you might, can actually overcome. Um, but that, of course, is ex precisely what, you know, what a risen Jesus uh, offers and, and does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly 
what we want our listeners to take away from this series is on an individual level, how can you incite that change in your own life and to the people around you to ultimately get them to incite that change and then the people around them. And it's this kind of exponential thing um, that grows. It's almost like a kingdom. Yeah, wait, that's crazy. Yeah, that'd be wild. But yeah, I think that that part of talking about death and um, you know the depravity of man—that's that's where we're going to be going for the next two episodes. Yeah. Um, not to be morbid, but it's the reality that the image of God has been distorted in our world, and the image of God has been oppressed by many groups, and we've become uh, we're, we're culpable, but also we have uh, become the victims at the same time. Yeah. So. The next two episodes are going to be awesome and um, really fleshing that out and getting us to the place where we're restored to the image of God when Jesus returns one day. So, um, yeah. So thank you, Dr. Chrysler, for being on. This was an awesome conversation. Yeah, thanks for Um, your invitation. Yeah, Yeah. it was was very fun. Yeah, Yeah, so uh, thank you all for tuning in this week, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Yeah.